are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you from Dallas, Texas, which is home base for me. This program is all about helping people more meaningfully and productively connect with their work and equipping organizations to do the same for their employees. So I bring on guests who have a particular perspective or experience that I think expands the conversation about meaningful and productive work. And I often draw on the meaning and work research I've been doing over the last 15 years, as well as my own consulting experience, including the work that I do today at Insidium, which is a global management consulting firm. I'll get to my guest in just a moment, but first a shout out to my media partner and sponsor, Jobbing.com. They are the leading locally focused job board in the nation and they are dedicated to helping employers find quality talent in their own backyard while giving job seekers control over their search so they can find work close to home. If you missed the show live last week, you can always catch it via podcast. We were on the air with Brittany Merrill Underwood. She is the founder and CEO of the Acola Project. We had a most inspirational conversation about how this social enterprise nonprofit company helps pull women and children in Uganda out of poverty while also helping women in Dallas, many of whom have been victims of sex trafficking, earn a living wage. It was incredibly inspiring, and I was personally moved to tears at least twice myself. It was amazing what this woman is doing. So a couple things for you listeners. Um, I am changing my format here a little bit as we go forward here, and I'd love to hear your input on that. What do you like about the show? What would you like to see done a little bit differently? So you can always tweet to me at Elise Cortez, A-L-I-S-E-C-O-R-T-E-Z. Now, with us this week, we have a guest named Tahar Ali, who is a successful and respected international keynote speaker working around the globe. He is author of Failure Way to Success, which is an incredible story of what it takes to achieve your goals and dreams in life. He is also the CEO of a billion-dollar real estate investment business with over 1,600 sales staff. We'll be talking about the fascinating and very challenging early life that he had that helped to make him who he is today, what he's learned from any of those experiences, and some of his secrets and strategies for facing economic downturns, among other business matters. He joins us today via Skype from London, where it's currently 11 p.m. after a very full day. Tahar, welcome to Working on Purpose. Hello, Elise. Hello. Hello. I, I have to say, you know I love that accent of yours. Yes, everybody does love my Scottish accent. It's wonderful. And then when you look at your face, it just doesn't make sense. It's fantastic. <laughs> There's just so much to you. Well, they, um, they, they can't complain. Tall, dark, handsome and has that accent. I well. know. Darn it. It's terrible. Um, <laughs> I only wish we were doing this in person. Uh, so let me also tell my listeners that we found each other on Twitter. I have um, really so enjoyed that medium to be able to meet people all over the world and have them join me on the show. So again, welcome. It's wonderful to have you. Yeah, I'm truly grateful. Well, for this first part of the conversation here, Tahar, I really wanted to presence the listeners to a bit of your background. You and I had a, a good initial conversation about just really what you went through as a young person. And um, boy, you know, listening to that, I, the reason I want you to talk about that is because I want our listeners to understand that one, you really do know how to work from adversity. And two, what I hope they get out of hearing some of this is that Man, you know, there are some amazing challenges that people face in the world, and it helps them make them who they are today. So tell us a little bit about what it was like for you to grow up in your early background. 
Yeah, well, firstly, you know, listeners, I, need, I would like to know that I'm not a silver spoon child. I don't have any trust funds. You know, I just had the determination, the resilience, and, you know, the, the outright just focus on what I wanted to do with my life. And for me, you know, I was a young entrepreneur at the age of 12 years old. I decided to, you know, go into business purely as a result because, you know, we were struggling at home. Our family was, you know, very, very tight for money, as most households are around the world today. So it's not any different. And for me, you know, my father has said to me that not one person is going to employ you at 12 years of age. And I could have easily have taken, you know, rejection. I could have said, okay, dad, no problem. I'll just go back to school. Uh, but I didn't. I went out there and I found someone who was willing to take a chance on me. I even offered my services for free so that they would, you know, see what I'm like and believe in me that I had the ability to do what I needed to do. And that's how my entrepreneurial journey started, just with a bit of determination and a bit of grit that I didn't take no for an answer. And what were you doing? What service or product were you offering? Well, most of your listeners might be too young to, to, to figure out, but I was selling computer games for the Commodore 64 and the <laughs> ZX Spectrum. That was the first computers that were ever out in the market back in the 1980s. And for me, it was just a question of those days, the era was where you purchased a game for a computer. Once you finished it, that was it. You move on to the next one. But the people who didn't have the means to go out and buy expensive games, I would take the expensive games from the, the children who had played with them, finished with them, and put them in my market stall and sold them uh, like lesser value purely so that someone else can you know, take advantage of that game. And I made a small profit in the process. Okay, really quick, and I do want to make sure we have plenty of time to get to your story, but how in the world did you come up with that idea? It was just, I had started working in the markets for about a couple of weeks and one of the skill sets that I have today, and I'm not sure how I've got this, a lot of people, you know, are very envious of it, is I can sit in a coffee shop or I can be in a business meeting or I can be at a networking event and I can hear five conversations at the one time. So mm-hmm. I can practically know what's going on in all five conversations. Now, in the markets, when I was walking around looking at other stall owners and how they were selling their products, my focus was on what they were doing, how they were selling stuff. And I just thought to myself, I could do that. I could definitely do that. And that's it. That was my first you know, venture into it. And I just had to think what it was that I could do that could be very niche of what I what the kids wanted. and Because I was a kid and I wanted computer games. I simply couldn't afford to buy them. So I thought to myself, well, what are the, the you know the, the kids who have bought them and finished with them, what are they doing with them? Nothing. They're just going to go in the bin. So I took them off them and I started selling them at a stall. <laughs> I'm so glad you started with the story tower because it'll be a nice bookmark as we finish and talk about what what you do today in the business world. But I have to say it's very a very endearing way to start this conversation. And and I know that you know, there were many other things that happened to you along the way that were certainly not fun. So let's let's get into some of those things that you had to deal with. 
Yeah, well, the first thing I had to deal with uh, was my mother was ill at the time with cancer. I also had a drug addict sister. And growing up was tough. It wasn't easy, uh, to say the least. And, you know, the the reason that I went uh, to do business at 12 years of age, because my mother just simply couldn't, you know, work because of her illness to bring additional revenue into the home. So for me, I thought, well, if I'm going out and I'm helping my father with the bills, you know, the, the electricity, the gas or the, you know, the mortgage, then at least he didn't have the stress of not having, you know, my my mum you know, providing for the home. Now, my mum did pass, you know, sadly, and I took my eye off the ball in business and I took some time off to care for her in her last few months. And it was very tough, you know, as it's, you know, a young boy at 13, 14 years of age, losing your mother is not something that we all envisage. And life just got a whole lot tougher. And sometimes for me, I had to lash out and I did. And I got involved with the wrong crowd I was involved in gangs. I started, you know, stealing motor cars. And I spent more time in the, the police stations than I did at home. And, <laughs> my fa- you know, my, my, my father was just getting sick of it because, you know, every couple of days uh, there'd be a knock on the door and he'd always say to the officer, you know, what's he been arrested for now? And, you know, but he still stood by me. That was one thing about my father. You know, he, he knew that I had the ability, you know, uh, and the mental capacity to make it, he just thought that he's, you know, rebelling in the fact that his mother has passed away and he just wants to lash out and have a place to vent. Actually, that is wonderful that your father was in that place, that he could actually be there for you like that. That is very commendable. He's an amazing man. He really is. Uh, and most people who have, have read my book, uh, as you've mentioned earlier, Fail Your Way to Success, uh, I've written very highly about my father. And everybody who's read it actually loved their, uh, my father more than they love me. So, <laughs> oh, oh. oh, wow. It's hard for me to imagine knowing you. Uh, I don't know you very well, obviously, but knowing you a little bit, that I can't imagine you being in gangs and stealing cars to her. I just can't. Yeah, well, I stole almost 200 cars. I'm not proud of it. Wow! You know, I'm not proud of it, to to be honest with you. And for me, it was, I always, I was a petrol head, and that's, you know, I still am today. And for me, you know, that was the one outlet where I thought I could be me, you know. And it, it was tough. It wasn't pleasant. And, you know, spending time in the police cells was never easy because you're in amongst different criminals and, you, they all ask you, you know, what are you in for? And you have conversations with them. And late at night when you're in a cell on your own and you're you're kind of contemplating what you did. But you went out back out. I went back out the next day and I did it exactly the same, you know. So it was just stupidity on my part. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Okay, so that's what age? How old are you at that point when this is happening? Uh, I was going, well, this was all going on around 15, 16. Okay, all right. And then what? And then what's next? I mean, there, wait, there's more. <laughs> yeah, there's more. <laughs> well, the, the reason my my father thought that to you know settle this man down and calm down his you know gangland ways, he would you know take me on the pretense of a holiday to Pakistan, and that pretense of a holiday was actually indeed that he had arranged a marriage for me. 
And at 16 years of age, I think don't think there's very many kids that think about marriage. Uh, for me, you know, I got there and I overheard them having a conversation with some elders. And I said to him, I says, you know, they're talking about marriage. And he says, yeah, he says, we're talking about your marriage. And I'm like, what? And he says, yeah, he says, I thought that this would, you know, calm you down and it would maybe give you some settling and get you away from the gangs and, you know, get you out of trouble with the police. And to a certain degree, I says, well, I'm only 16. I says, you must be crazy if you think I'm going to get married at this age. And then he said to me, he used the emotional blackmail. It was like, you know, I don't know how long I've got left in life and I would like to see you settle down, see my grandchildren. And I kind of fell for it because I had to look at the fact was here was a man that after my mother passed away, he did absolutely everything for me. You know, he stood by me through all my criminal activities and he simply, you know, didn't judge. He basically remained as a father, loyal, whether I was getting arrested at three in the morning. Uh, and he would come out to bail me out, bring me home, make me something to eat. So I didn't want to say no to him. So I did went along with it. And to a certain degree, it did work out at least. Yeah. Let's make sure that our, our listeners understand, because I, of course, I'm looking at your handsome face, um, <laughs> and they probably don't know what you mean by coming back to a, for a vacation, uh, pretense vacation to Pakistan. Your father must be from Pakistan. Yes, he was originally born in India, actually, and then he went over to Pakistan uh, during the war, and I think it was 1947 or something. Uh, so it was a long time ago. So he had came over to the United Kingdom in 1958 as an, you know, expat, and he settled here. He obviously, you know, married my mother over the the, the, the from Pakistan as well. So it was, you know, that was the background for they were. But I'm born in Scotland. I'm born in the United Kingdom. But you know, my heritage in terms of, you know, where my father comes from and my parents is, is from another country. Okay, so you're you've got an arranged marriage at sixteen. Did you actually get married at sixteen? Yes, I got married. I was just uh, three weeks after my seventeenth birthday. That's when I got married. Okay, and you'd never laid eyes on this woman before. Uh, not until the day of my wedding. No. <laughs> amazing can we just talk about that for just a moment as a person who was married for 16 years together for 18 certainly saw my husband before I married him um, from the western culture perspective what was it like for you to look well, down that aisle and go that's that's her that's who I'm going to be married to yeah well the thing is you didn't exactly walk down an aisle uh, what happens is you actually get married first and then once the wedding ceremony is is done she then comes over to sit next to you as your wife Oh, so that's, that's how it works. So that's how I actually seen her. So it wasn't any I.O. It was kind of she came from a room from behind me and just sat next to me. And what do you remember about that? Uh, it was quite scary. But, you know, in a, in a, to a certain degree, I had to then I realized that there and then that I had responsibility and I had to get away from the criminals and the gangs that I was associated with because, you know, I had a duty of care and an obligation to this woman because, you know, she is someone's daughter, she's someone's sister. And, you know, someone has obviously, you know, her parents have, you know, put their trust in me to look after her. And that's what was going through my head. Okay, so you're 17 years old, you're married. Now what happens? Yeah, well, I came back to the UK. I, you know, want to be my own man and I decide to, to leave my father's home 
I, I didn't have the money to do it, in all honesty, and I was working, you know, religiously nonstop just to earn money, enough money for a deposit to buy a home so we can have our, our, our own house. And my wife at the time, she was pregnant, uh, expecting our first child. And, you know, we were still staying at our parents. And once I had saved the money, I then purchased my own home. But we didn't have any money to purchase furniture or anything like that. And I said to my father, eventually, I broke the news to him that I've purchased my own house and I'd like to be my own man. And, you know, how do you feel about that? And he just took it badly. He just says, well, I want you to leave tonight. And I says, well, I can't leave tonight because, you know, the house that I've purchased, I don't have any money for furniture. I don't have money for a bed. You know, I don't even have anything. And he says, that's not my problem. I said, if you want to be your own man, go figure it out. Mm. Okay, then. And it wasn't easy, so it was heartbreak. I had to leave the, the home, and that night I went into my first home that I had purchased with no furniture or anything, and I just slept on the floor, and I was, like, really cold, but I had a little bit of heating on, and I just cried myself to sleep. It was quite tough. Uh, I think it dawned on me that this is what the world's all about. It's not going to get any easier. And then in the morning when I got up, I was extremely tired and I decided, you know, I needed to have a, a glass of water, not realizing that I didn't even have a glass. I had to put my mouth to the tap, uh, <laughs> you know, to, to have, a, have a drink. So that kind of kind of woke me up. That, yeah, welcome to the real world. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm an adult now. I'm on. I'm a. I'm a man on my own now. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Um, somewhere in there, you told me that, and I don't know where this happens in the story. I want to make sure that we do presence the things that are important about your early upbringing. But you told me there were at least a couple of times that you were homeless. Yes, that's true. Um, the homeless stage had happened. Uh, the first home that I've just explained to you that I had purchased, and you know, slowly but surely, I was in a job. And it was paying, you know, the bills, it was paying my mortgage. And, you know, I started to buy household things like a bed and, a, you know, a, a settee to sit on and a dining table and, you know, cutlery, forks, uh, pots, pans, dishes. And then the recession had hit in 1990. The interest rates were going through the roof. There was a, a lot of, you know, redundancies that were going on within the United Kingdom. And I was one of them. So I lost my job. I just bought my first home. And you can imagine someone has just bought, purchased the first home, has just now bought some things to make it into a home. You know, and at the time, uh, my wife was expecting, you know, child number two. And I just lost my job. So it was quite a, a dawning experience, you know, thinking that, oh, my God, what do I do now? I've got no income. How do I pay the mortgage? How do I pay the bills? And I just started falling into arrears, at least practically with everything. It, it was like I was robbing Peter to pay Paul. So if I was going to pay my electricity, I would use the gas money to pay the electricity. And at the same time, I had to juggle money to find you know, money for baby formula and diapers for my children. And it wasn't easy. And I think that was probably the, the biggest lesson of learning you know, what it's like to be a parent. 
Oh, well, that is on that sobering note, <laughs> I'm going to stop for a second here and have us take our first break. Here, let, let our listeners just kind of let that settle in for them. Um, and listeners, please, uh, please interact with us. Join us um, for your, send us our com- your comments or your thoughts to on Twitter to Elise Cortez, A-L-I-S-E-C-O-R-T-E-Z. Love to hear what you're getting from this conversation. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Tahar Ali, who is a successful and respected international keynote speaker working around the globe. He is author of Failure Way to Success, which is an incredible story of what it takes to achieve your goals and dreams in life. He joins us today via Skype in London. We've been talking a bit about his early upbringing. After the break, we're going to get into some of the lessons that he got from those experiences. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Are you ready to tackle the rules of business? You may think you're doing everything by the book, following your own best practice beliefs, bringing in endless consultants, only to find that your business is not moving forward. That's where you need to stop and figure out where things are going wrong. Enter Business Rules with host Peter Feinstein. Peter and his guests will break it all down for you to help you and your business succeed. Listen Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's one 346 9141 You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Tahar Ali, who is a successful and respected international keynote speaker working around the globe. He is author of Failure Way to Success, which is an incredible story of what it takes to achieve your goals and dreams in life. He is also the CEO of a billion-dollar real estate investment business with over 1,600 sales staff. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So, Tahara, before uh, we went on break, we were just presencing a bit about your early upbringing, and I know we were not quite through with your bout of homelessness, and so if you'll (laughs) fill us in on the rest of those details. 
Yeah, as we just finished before the break, I said to you that I just lost my job and things were tight and I was struggling for money and they got really, really bad to the point where, uh, you know, my electricity was cut off, my gas was cut off. It was, you know, just coming up before my 21st birthday and I received an eviction notice as a gift for my 21st birthday. <laughs> uh, so that morning, you know, I just looked at it and I thought to myself, well, there you go. At least I don't need to worry about the mortgage. And I had arranged, you know, for us to, to, to go to a homeless shelter uh, because I had still had about a month or so before uh, I was due to be evicted. Uh, my eviction date was the 14th of December uh, 1992. So, you know, I packed up my things and you know a week before uh, we were due to get evicted you know things were really tight at home I hadn't had any food for about a week and I just had a box of copper coins and all I knew is I needed to get baby formula and I needed to get diapers and I used the, the copper coins you know to the storekeeper to ask him if he can do that for me he says keep your money just take whatever it is that you need and I was truly grateful, you know, because it's lovely to see people out there that can help you in that time of need. Uh, and it was hard. And, you know, I looked at the fact that, you know, within a few days I'm going to be out of a home and I just need to make the most of it. So the day of eviction came. It was 9.30 in the morning. I um, went to the homeless unit after that. And I was doing an IT training course to learn new skills so that I can apply them in a job because if someone asked me, you know, do you have computing skills? I didn't want to say that I didn't. So I was doing training on a training course, which was provided, you know, free of charge. And I decided, you know, that I needed to go there just to get my head out of, you know, losing my home that morning. And that very afternoon, at least, uh, my father passed away at 2.30. I was so broke that I didn't even have the money for the bus fare to go and get his dead body that I walked six miles in the snow, which was practically up to my knees, to the hospital to see my father. And it wasn't easy. And the first thing I thought of, you know, was how do I bury him? Because I've not even got any money for any, you know, funeral. I've not even, you know, had anything to eat in the past seven days. And can this day get any worse? So, yeah, that was my one lesson that I learned that it's all about resiliency, it's about determination and life will always do its utmost, you know, to break you down today. And if it doesn't succeed, then it's going to make another attempt tomorrow. Oh my gosh, there's so much that I could ask you about this, but let me let me first just see if if you can how do you think you were able to respond? I mean you this is true resilience we're talking about here how how do you think you were able to handle this as seemingly well as you did well believe it or not uh, when I was in my 20s I was quite stubborn and everybody <laughs> uh, everybody said that about me they said you know what he's so stubborn he's such a stubborn child and that, that was it I was stubborn I was very you know and, and in a way I would think I was quite arrogant uh, cocky even uh, Elise, and I'm not saying that these are good traits to have, and you know, as an individual now, because as the years have progressed, I know that that's not something I am. But I think that's what got me through it. I had a stubborn streak, and I knew that you know that's fine. I'm I was quite young, and I realised that no matter what comes my way, I always felt invincible because as a child, you know, I was a big risk taker. 
And everybody knew that about me. They says that he is a big risk taker. You know, he will... I was jumping out of two-story buildings just to get kicks. I, I would, you know, do school field trips and I would go into places where you're not supposed to go, where it says no entry, danger, and I was the first person there. You know, so the, I didn't have the fear. I, I genuinely didn't have the fear. So that's kind of what got me through that first phase of, of being homeless. Mm-hmm. I somehow don't have a hard time imagining you being stubborn and a risk taker. That that doesn't surprise me somehow, seeing you today. <laughs> <laughs> but what I also do want to do for our listeners, too, is I think there's so much power in being able to reflect on these things that we go through to see what we can learn from them. And I'd love it if you can share a bit about what, what did you get from these experiences? What did they teach you? Well, one thing I've learned is that during, and I think most of your listeners will appreciate this as well, is that during the times of your need, you can only ever count your true friends on one hand. And, you know, Will Smith said it perfectly. He says that when you hit rock bottom in life, you will know who your rock is when you're down there. (laughs) That is a great way to think about it. So, yeah, I I had some fantastic friends because I had a a phenomenal childhood growing up with those friends and and they got me through it, you know, so it was very much that we all supported one another. If I needed to vent, they were there for me. If I needed, you know, someone a a shoulder to to cry on, they were there for me. If I needed, you know, assistance with moving or or anything, they were all there for me. So I value uh, loyalty you know, very importantly, that's one thing that everybody that knows me knows that loyalty and respect is, is two things that I, I cherish dearly. Okay, so friends, loyalty and respect, I got yeah. that, all right. So it's, you know, it's about making sure that you believe in yourself, you know, because it's easy for anyone else out there to say, you know, don't do this, don't do that. And I was getting, you know, so many people who would always come in and say to me, you know, you should do this and do that. And my reply would always be the same. You know, don't judge my life in a manner that you've walked in my shoes. Mm -hmm. Because you haven't, you know. So, and until you've walked a mile in my shoes, then feel free to give your opinion. But if you are going to do so, you're wearing my shoes and you're a mile away, so I'm not even going to hear you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there is such power, right? And one of that whole notion of being able to really understand somebody's perspective, the only way to do that is to really, as you say, either walk in their shoes or get so deeply into their experience that it's as if you're right there with them. And then that Ab- takes something, right? It really takes Ab- something to do that. Absolutely, Lisa, absolutely. Okay, got it. So this whole notion of being able to walk in somebody else's shoes to be able to have something to say about their life or to join their their dialogue. Got it. What else did you learn? What else did you get from these experiences? Well, I learned, uh, I think, a lot more to reflect. And the reflection was very important to me because, you know, it kind of determined who I was going to become. And that was important because, you know, I learned that, you know, I've just had the, a passing of my mother. I've learned that my father, you know, had, had passed and he was still supportive of me going through the periods. And, you know, 
my mother and father never had a relationship, right? They never spoke. They stayed in the same home for, you know, 14 years of their marriage and they never had a discussion. Uh, they did not even want to share the same floor space. Now, when my father found out that my mum was ill with cancer, he was, you know, her primary carer. Uh, he looked after her, fed her, clothed her, bathed her, washed her and, and did everything, you know, for this woman. And I asked my father, I said, you know, you've never had a relationship with my mum. I said, she's never once asked you, you know, if you were ill, can I get you anything? Can I help you with anything? I said, you were in hospital for three months and she never once came to visit you. She doesn't even acknowledge the fact that you are her husband. You stay in separate rooms within the home. You don't speak to one another. Can I ask you why you did everything for her when she was ill? And he said that, you know, if you life... You know, he, he, he said this amazing quote to me and he says that anger is the wind that blows out the candle to the mind. Oh, that's so powerful. <gasps> I've never heard that before. That's amazing. Okay. Now, he says that when you live your life in anger, he says that all you do is you become resentful of everything and everyone around you. And he says that you'll never move forward because the energy that you're radiating from your body just doesn't, nobody wants to come near it. So he says, you know, just forgive and whatever has happened, let it go. And I had to do that. So that's one thing I learned, you know, is I had all this adversity and I just had to let it go. And I knew that, it, you know, nothing in life will ever happen to you. It happens for you. Mm, that's a very powerful perspective to heart. What I like about that perspective is it removes the victim mentality and it's empowering instead. Absolutely. So I then started to become grateful for all the hardship, for all the you know suffering that I had went through. And once I started to be grateful for it, everything, and I mean everything, has started to come into my life the way I wanted it to come in. You know, I was back in the corporate world. I'd found myself a job. I started earning good money. I was doing a part-time, you know, self-employed basis, selling mobile telephones because at the time that's when they had just started to, you know, become uh, a thing. And I decided that I'm going to save enough money and, and buy my own home without a mortgage. And I did that. So I had the determination to succeed. I had a goal. I was focused on it. Uh, and I just didn't let anything stop me. And how old were you when that happened to her? I was about 23. Wow. Okay. Holy cow. That's quite a turnaround. Okay. Yeah. I, I have to go back to something else that you said because I'm riveted on it, if you don't mind. Sure. You, you mentioned something about you were reflecting on who I was going to become when all this was happening in your life. And because I have been somebody who has been investigating not only meaning in work, but also identity for years. I'm really interested in what was happening for you when you were thinking about this whole notion of who you were becoming in this process. Did you have a, a target in mind of where you were trying to get to in terms of who you were becoming? Yeah, because I wanted to be the, the leader because that was important for me. And, uh, you know, I wanted the pe to be the person that someone could rely on because I wanted, you know, my children to say that, you know, our father got us out of this hole. You know, I... Uh, I wanted to be the, the person that everybody looked around and said, 
that look at everything that this man has went through and he's came out of it. You know, he's not let anything stop him. He's not let the people come in and dictate to him how he should live his life. I'd learned leadership skills and that was important because I took ownership. And what you find is leaders, you know, they always say, you know, what makes a good leader? And a good leader is the person who brings out the best in everyone. That's what a good leader is. You know, it's, it's someone who who brings out the best in everyone. And that's what I wanted to do. I had to bring out the best in the people around me. And whilst doing that, that allowed me to grow and be focused and determined of where I wanted to be. I really like that definition, Tahar. I've never heard that. It's very, very simple, but incredibly powerful. A good leader is someone who brings out the best in everyone. I love that. I love that. Okay, so you're 23 years old. You buy outright your home for your family. Um, just chronologically, what's next and what you learned along the way? Yeah, well, then I went into the corporate world because uh, I kind of decided that I needed to, to take a safer approach, at least, uh, and stop taking the big risks that I was taking. Uh, and, and I did that. I worked for, you know, for a number of years for a, a well-established bank. Uh, then I moved into the financial services sector for a large wealth management company. Uh, and then I spent another, you know, 10 years or so within uh, media and, you know, the, the television industry. Now, I was doing those jobs side by side because I wanted to learn everything about the corporate world, you know, how to do business, how to, you know, learn everything about wealth, investing, financial planning and everything else. Because this was knowledge which was important to me because I learned that when I didn't have money, you know, I didn't want to be in that same position again. I'd really wanted to, to, to invest it, make something with my life, plan for my future uh, and not be in the same position that I had to go through again. So it was very important that I did that. And the corporate world taught me a lot of things. It's, it's not something I would ever go back into today. But it's been worthwhile. Mm-hmm. That's quite a quite a breadth of experience you've had in terms. Of, you said so you sold cell phones. Then I heard you say you worked for a bank, and then financial services or investing, and then media. That's actually quite an interesting combination. Yeah, it is. And, you know, the surprising thing is, Elise, I started as a temp in all of those companies. Uh, (laughs) And when I left at the bank, I was one of the the senior um, lending officers. Uh, When I left the wealth management firm, I was a director of the National Accounts Division. And when I left with the media, I was an operational director there as well. So, you know, these are are three roles that I started at the bottom and I just worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and, you know, left there at very high positions. So I learned everything that I needed to learn about the business world and the corporate world, I should say, uh, not the business side, but the corporate side of, you know, that 15 years within those industries. Mm. I think I want to presence that really quick for our listeners. It's, it, we all know how important it is to keep learning in life, right? We all know that. But boy, you are a living, walking testament to that, Tahar. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Um, we are so close to going into our first break here. Um, is there anything else that you learned from that period, our first break, our second break? Anything else that you learned in that period that you want to be sure and share with us? Yeah, one thing is you need to, to read and a lot of people, you know, they, they don't like to read. They don't want to pick up a book. But, you know, my father always used to say to me, he says that learning is earning. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, think about it, you know, ladies and gentlemen, if you're reading one book per week, that's 52 books in the year. Now, over a 10-year window, if you started at the age of 30, by the time you're 40, you would have the knowledge which is equivalent of a PhD. Wow. And, you know, you have to also look at the fact that everyone else who's at 40 years of age who hasn't read the same number of books in the past 10 years before you, you're going to be earning 10 times more of them as well. Oh my gosh! I should send you a picture of my long old list. I've got a queue of books that I that I that are set for me to read to heart because I'm also big into reading too. In addition to to doing the show each week, so I'm completely with you. You got one believer, and that's me. Good. <laughs> All right, let's take a short break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Tahar Ali, who is a successful and respected international keynote speaker working around the globe. He is author of Failure Way to Success, which is an incredible story of what it takes to achieve your goals and dreams in life. He joins us today via Skype in London, where currently it's almost midnight. After the break, we're going to hear about how he actually uses some of this stuff in his business today, some of those secrets and strategies that you can take and use as well. Stay with us. We'll be right back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support. We all have unique experiences and outlooks when it comes to leadership and team building. Yet sometimes we clash, even when trying to achieve the exact same goals. Check out Unleash Your Inner Goldilocks, How to Get It Just Right. Your host is Dr. Cass Henry. A shared journey equals success. And every human interaction has the power to achieve this success by working together. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. 
Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Tahar Ali, who is a successful and respected international keynote speaker working around the globe. He is the author of the book called Failure Way to Success, which is an incredible story of what it takes to achieve your goals and dreams in life. He is also the CEO of a billion-dollar real estate investment business with over 1,600 sales staff. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We would love to hear what it is that is really landing for you in this conversation. What are you getting from this conversation. It'd be great to hear from you via Twitter. Send me a tweet to Elise Cortez. So Tahar, one of the things I wanted to do, if we can, as we were talking about over over the the break, I remember very, very fondly something you told me in our first conversation um, via Skype. Um, And I said, well, gosh, are you sure you want to come on the show at that time and do a live show? Because it's going to be 11 o'clock your time and we'll finish at midnight. And you said, well, I go to bed anyway, later, any, anyhow, and I sleep only about four hours a night. That's what I, what I do. And I really am not able to go to sleep anyway until I feel like I've helped someone. That's true. I think that's extraordinary. Can you say a little bit more about this perspective of yours, this value yeah. of yours? Well, firstly, how I came about for four hours sleeping, and I'm very open and honest, and everybody realizes that about me, is I had a nervous breakdown. And during that breakdown of 18 months, I wasn't sleeping. I was crying myself, you know, when practically when I woke up. And I was crying myself practically through the whole day. And before I even managed to did get some sleep, I would cry and I would wake up having panic or anxiety attacks. And it was tough. You know, I stayed at home and I didn't leave the house. Just didn't want to meet anyone, didn't speak to anyone. I didn't even have a support network because, you know, it was very, very like, different for me. So that four-hour time constraint had resulted of a, a period of insomnia and I then had to build a routine that I decided that this is when I'm going to sleep and this is when I'm going to wake but one thing I learned from it is that I obtain my happiness in life by helping and serving others so for me now that's very crucial and I speak with almost between you know 15 sometimes 20 people in the day who need my assistance need my guidance or just need that little bit of inspiration to to make a difference or make a change with their life. And, you know, Will, Will Smith is one of my, my favorite actors, and he's probably one of the best motivational men out there in the world. And, you know, I, I seen an interview of him just a, a few weeks ago, and he was asked that when you're on a movie set, he says, why do you take the time out to speak to everyone who's, you know, like watching in the public? And he says that he does not know what they may be going through in life. But if he can give them one minute of his time and make a difference to their day, he says it's worth it. And I have the same mentality. So if I can, you know, speak to someone, be it 20 minutes, half an hour, and make a difference to their life, no matter what it is that they're going through, I know it's worth it. So the four hours that I sleep is so that I can dedicate the 20 to serve others. Okay, so obviously you clearly are a man who is living and working on purpose. You are you you got a purpose statement there it is right there. I think that's so important for our listeners to get to that this is part of I think probably what makes you who you are Tahar, is that you can stand from that place and you can live and work on your from your purpose. Absolutely. It is, and that's important to me because, you know, as we were chosen from one in 40 million sperm, mm. we were not brought onto this planet to just pay a mortgage and pay bills. 
I do not, under any circumstances, want my tombstone to say dead but not used up. I want it to say that millions of people in life never gave up on their dreams because of me. Oh, I, I, I really applaud that. I really appreciate that. And we, we know that's happening. And I, I think it's also important for our listeners to know, I think you, don't you give away a certain amount of your proceeds from your book too? Yes, I do. Uh, all my proceeds uh, go to a charity foundation from the book sales. And from my speaking engagements, uh, 30% goes away to uh, my charity foundation. And any consulting work that I receive, that all goes to charity as well. It's phenomenal, Tahar. It's phenomenal. So for this last little bit here, we're coming, it'll be soon enough that we have to close the show. So let's make sure our listeners that you, that you do today, um, your real estate investment business. When, when did that come about? Tell us a little bit about that, if you will. Yeah, the business started in 2003. Uh, you know, I was sold out by my corporate world. Uh, after September 11th and 2001 and decided that I wanted to to make a break and go on my own and it was risky I knew that but I was always the type of person that was willing to take risks Uh, I had met you know someone in property who's still my business partner today after 14 years Uh, lovely lovely you know I treat him like a brother he treats me like a brother as well Iftikhar and we we built the company from nothing you know we didn't have any investment we didn't have any you know crowdfunding is what we can get today or you know investors Uh, but we just had a like an ambition and a dream to to go out and, and you know create a brand create a company that could do well so we started off very, very small in 2003, and it did take a setback at a later stage because one of my business partners had stolen all the company funds and had, you know, disappeared off the face of the earth and went off to Switzerland to enjoy the money. And that was the second time that I became homeless. So there was more business lessons to be learned there. Uh, hence the reason why I was—I just mentioned to you earlier about my nervous breakdowns because it was a lot to take on board. So. That started from nothing, but what I did do was I I started selling real estate at a small scale. So I was doing maybe five or six properties at a time, and I was knocking on doors of developers to say, please, please give me your stock so I can sell it. And every single developer had practically turned me away. And I said, you know, okay, they all said to me, we don't know you, you're unknown you know, we'll deal with the people that we deal with, the large investment companies and the people that we're in bed with our private members clubs and country clubs and golf courses. And I says, well, if you're not willing to take a chance on me, then how will you ever know that, you know, I'm good enough to sell your product? So I kept knocking on doors and I must have knocked on about 1,100 doors, Alicia. And it wasn't easy taking rejection after rejection. But one thing I have to say to everyone that's on listening in is, you need to make rejection your best friend, you know. <laughs> and I have a principle called the 30 to 1. So for every 30 people that you're going to ask, one is going to say no. Uh, one is going to say yes. So just look at it as if you're going out dating on, on a speed dating network, you know. <laughs> 30 women are going to say no to you and one will say, oh, yeah, okay, I'd love to go on a date with you. So it's the same process and you can laugh about it because that's the way to deal with the rejection. And I, I did that and eventually, you know, a couple of developers, they took the chance on me and I delivered for them practically, you know, they gave me t- uh, 10 sales to do and I got the 10 sales done in a matter of days and we slowly built the business up. We then uh, I moved to the Middle East and expanded at a larger scale 
And I did that, and I brought the business back to the UK, and, and we just grew it. And it hasn't been easy. I'm not saying that. And how do you recover from the fact that once you built a business up, you've got phenomenal cash in the bank, you're very cash rich, you're well established, and then all of a sudden, the rug comes out under your feet because your business partner has just cleaned out the company takings and you know headed off to Switzerland. So it was hard. So that's a big knock in confidence, and you had a, a, a had a breakdown on the back of that. But at the end of it, you know, I decided I need to give up on my pity party, uh, and I got back out there, uh, and I started knocking on doors again uh, and building up, you know, the business. Uh, and I built it up to a great deal. And my business partner, he stuck by me. The two of us went out, and we did what we had to do. We created a team, uh, and in business. The, you know, your your team is very, very crucial. No matter how brilliant your ideas are, you know, they will never work if you don't have a, a great team because your success is all about execution. And if you don't have the right people in place, it doesn't matter what knowledge you have, how much time and energy that you give to your business, it will not succeed. So you have to have great teams within the business. And that's what we started to do. We created a team around us. And slowly but surely, I then decided that I need to bring on people that will do the sales so that I can then spend more time managing on the business rather than managing in the business. So there's a difference there. You know, once you manage on your business, it's more likely to succeed than it is when you're managing in the business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've, you've just got to, you know, realize that everything that you want to do in business, it will never happen overnight. No one does that. You know, it takes years worth of work. It's never going to come easy and it's never going to come fast. And you have to learn to say no. You know, so when people come to you say, oh, you know, are you willing to do that? No, because if it doesn't matter to you, say no to it and move on quickly. Because anybody can fill a day with nonsense or choices or opportunities and distractions. But you need to get away from that. You just need to focus on what it is that you want to do. Uh, and this was important to me. So I went out and I decided, you know, this is how we're going to grow our business. And we did. We then opened our second office in Dubai. Our third office then opened in Hong Kong. Our fourth office opened in uh, Malaysia. And then our final office opened in Singapore. And all of a sudden, we're now a global brand. And we started bringing in more sales staff. And then we decided that we're going to start working with what's known as strategic partners. So if you want to call it in layman's terms, it's called collaboration. And then once you call, like collaborate in business, it becomes a lot easier to, to grow and, you know, create a brand for yourself. And, and that's important, you know. So always be willing to work with other people. Don't see them as competition. See them as colleagues and co-workers that you can, you know, grow a business with. And in our business, you know, as big as it is today, we, we do sell almost, you know, two, two billion of real estate plus per year. We don't have any senior management within the business. So from the guy at the bottom as a temp to myself and my business partners, every person is a CEO, Elise, every single one. You know, we don't have a board. We simply do not have a board at all. And for me, that's important because I value people that's what's important to me is I value people and because they know that I'm like that they give me the utmost performance in creating my brand and my business 
Oh my gosh, Tahar, uh, this has been an amazing conversation and we are at the close of the show. So I like to give my guest the last word, if you will. So sure. say in about 30 seconds, what would you like to leave our listeners with today? Well, what I want to say to them is your time is now. You know, we're too busy expecting tomorrow, next month, next year. But one thing I need you to realize, you're never guaranteed it. Okay, it's good to have your savings accounts plan for the future, you know, but one thing you need to remember is that you need to enjoy life today because the only thing that you truly have in this world is the present moment. Boy, and who knows that better than you? Some of the, I can't believe what you told me about your um, one of your business partners running off to Switzerland with all the money. That's just amazing. I, I almost fell off my chair when you said that, by the way. <laughs> I want to thank you very much, Tahar, for being on the show, for, for being you and for being the example of a person who we can all be. I, it's been quite an honor to have you on the, in this conversation. Thank you for being on the show. You're more than welcome. Thank you for having me. If you want to learn more about Tahar Ali and his book, Failure Way to Success, or even his real estate investment business, you can start at his his website, which is taharali.com. That's T-A-H-A-R-A-L-E.com. L-I. L-I. Excuse me. Go ahead and say it for us one more time. Yeah, it's www.taharali.com. Thank you, sir. On the air next week with us will be Chris Patch, who is the CEO of the Vero Way. And he's all, the conversation will be all about how to have good and productive conversations around networking as business people and why doing so is an important way to build our businesses for long-term success. See you then. Remember that work is at least one-third of our lives, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work. Work.